You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the 255th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, in the last episode, we looked at how new Federal Army Commander Major General Joseph Hooker reorganized and re-energized the Army of the Potomac. Yep. To everyone's astonishment, Fighting Joe quickly proved himself an excellent administrator. He mandated new sanitary rules. He cut desertions by setting up a popular system of furloughs. He vastly improved the hospital services. Hooker also won the men's hearts by forcing the Army's vast but inefficient supply corps to provide fresh vegetables, mostly onions and potatoes, twice a week. Most popular of all with the troops, he ordered that fresh, chewable loaves of bread be delivered at least four times a week to replace the usual issue of insect-infested, tooth-breaking hardtack biscuits. Hooker also reorganized the Army's command structure. He did away with the huge, unwieldy, grand divisions used by Burnside and reverted to the Corps organization, with the commander of each of the Army's seven infantry corps reporting directly to him. To distinguish the formations, Hooker approved the use of a system of badges for the men and officers to wear on their caps or hats. The various geometric shapes indicated the corps, and the color designated the division within it. For example, a red diamond was worn by soldiers of the 1st Division of 3rd Corps, and a white diamond by those of the Corps' 2nd Division. The simple devices did wonders for morale, with the men wearing them like badges of honor. Even more important for the future, Hooker created a separate cavalry corps, similar to the vaunted Confederate legions commanded by the famous Jeb Stuart. Previously, the Federal horse soldiers had been dispersed among the Army's various infantry units. Now the Army of the Potomac's cavalry would be grouped in an independent, three-division corps, ready and able to act on its own. Contemplating his reforms, Hooker was immensely pleased with himself and with the situation. Hooker told Abraham Lincoln he commanded, quote, the finest army on the planet. And he boasted to the president that it wasn't a question of if he would take Richmond, but only win.
If Joe Hooker had revitalized the Army of the Potomac, Robert E. Lee's Confederates, encamped on the other side of the Rappahannock River, were in far less happy shape. While fiercely proud of the trouncing they had given the Yankees at Fredericksburg back in December, the rebel troops were still freezing and half-starved. An officer in a Louisiana brigade reported that of the formation's 1,500 men, 400 had no shoes, and a great many were wearing clothing that was in tatters, and making do that winter with a single blanket. As for overcoats, he said, they were so rare as to be, quote, objects of curiosity. Food was desperately scarce, in part because a drought the previous summer had resulted in a poor harvest across much of the Confederacy. Also at fault were the South's rail lines, which were badly overstrained by the war and so struggled to deliver what supplies were available. Food shipments to the Army of Northern Virginia were so sporadic and inadequate that Lee's commissary officers were forced to cut the meat ration to a miserable four ounces of bacon per man per day. Vegetables were so scarce that in an attempt to avoid scurvy, Lee ordered each regiment, quote, to send a daily detail to gather sassafras buds, wild onions, and poke sprouts. Some of Lee's less squeamish troops began to catch and cook the rats that haunted the Army's winter encampments. One soldier optimistically claimed they, quote, tasted like young squirrel. Almost as bad from a military point of view, as the winter dragged on, the rebel army's draft horses were in deplorable condition because of lack of fodder, which had long since been exhausted in war-ravaged northern Virginia. The animals would have perished by the thousands if forced to pull wagons and artillery guns along muddy roads. This would have left the Confederates, as Lee said, quote, destitute of the means of transportation, end quote. In short, Lee could not, for the moment, move his army anywhere, anywhere, either to attack or even to shift to new defensive positions. Still more critical was the shortage of manpower. At full strength, the rebel army was about two-thirds the size of the Army of the Potomac, but then in February, Lee was forced to send Longstreet marching off to southern Virginia with the 13,000 men of Hood's and Pickett's divisions. This was because a federal force was reported to be moving down the Potomac, which might mean an attack on Richmond. Even after that danger proved imagined, Longstreet stayed in southern Virginia to keep an eye on Union footholds on the coast and to collect desperately needed supplies for the Army. These serious problems made the tightly controlled Lee unusually ill-tempered and snappish. When his daughter, Agnes, suggested she come for a visit, Lee wrote back, saying, The only place I am to be found is in camp, and I am so cross now that I am not worth seeing anywhere. Lee did make one excellent move, however, during the long winter. His artillery, especially with Longstreet gone, was badly outgunned by the Federals. Hooker had over 400 cannon, while Lee only had around 220. To try to make up for the shortfall, Lee consolidated his artillery in independent battalions of about 16 guns each, or four batteries. 
This way, he could mass guns quickly at any crucial spot on a battlefield. And in the upcoming clash at Chancellorsville, Lee would use his ability to concentrate artillery fire with devastating effect. The two armies, both absorbed in dealing with their various problems, had little contact through the late winter except for an occasional skirmish. Until, that is, the cavalry battle near Kelly's Ford on St. Patrick's Day. Twenty-seven-year-old Fitzhugh Lee, the Confederate Army commander's nephew, was one of Jeb Stuart's brigadiers, and in late February 1863, Fitz Lee had crossed the Rappahannock to jab past federal pickets and check rumors that Hooker was shifting his main force to thrust at Richmond from the south and east again. The rebel horsemen charged through fresh snow and panicked the New York and Pennsylvania cavalry, protecting Hooker's right flank at Hartwood Church. As the Confederate horsemen withdrew with about 150 prisoners, rumors magnified the probe into a major rebel attack, and Federal units rushed in all directions to counter it. But Fitz Lee got away, leaving behind Union cavalry officers furious at once more being embarrassed by the daring Confederate horse soldiers. To add insult to injury, Fitz Lee left a note for Brigadier General William Averill, who commanded one of the newly formed Federal Cavalry Divisions. You see, Lee and Averill had been West Point classmates and close friends, and now Fitz Lee decided to have some fun at his old friend's expense. He left behind a note daring Averill to, quote, return my visit. To rub it in, Lee also left behind some tobacco for his former friend and said that if Averill accepted his challenge, he was to bring along a sack of coffee, which was a rare luxury for the Confederates. Averill, stung by Lee's needling, asked for permission to cross the river and settle his score with his former friend. He got his chance when, on March 12th, Hooker instructed George Stoneman, the commander of the new Federal Cavalry Corps, to send a reconnaissance in force to Kelly's Ford to observe and report on enemy dispositions. Hooker's reasons for this may have been a mix of motives. He might have wanted to give the Union horsemen a chance to redeem themselves after their recent embarrassment. And he may also have wanted to test the reactions of the Confederate forces occupying the area so that he would know what to expect when he launched his spring campaign. In any case, on March 14th, Stoneman ordered Averill to take 3,000 troopers and six pieces of artillery across the river and attack and destroy, quote, the cavalry forces of the enemy reported to be in the vicinity of Culpeper Courthouse, end quote. Because he heard rumors that there was perhaps 250 to 1,000 rebel cavalry operating to the north on the near side of the Rappahannock, Averill requested that a regiment of Union horsemen be tasked with protecting his rear. This request was denied by Army headquarters, so Averill decided to detach nearly 900 men from his force, from the 1st Massachusetts and 4th Pennsylvania, to watch out for the enemy thought to be operating to the north. 
That meant Averill left behind nearly a third of his force, so he wouldn't be going into battle with 3,000 troopers as ordered, but more like 2,100, plus the six guns of the New York artillery battery that accompanied the column. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The head of the Yankee column arrived at Kelly's Ford about 8 a.m. on the morning of Tuesday, March 17th. However, their approach was no surprise to the rebels. The previous day, Fitz Lee had received a message from Army headquarters warning him that, quote, a large body of cavalry has left the Federal Army and was marching up the Rappahannock, end quote. But despite that warning, Fitzlee couldn't be certain of the Federal Cavalry's intentions or where they might cross the river, so he only reinforced the 20 sharpshooters who were picketing Kelly's Ford with about 40 more men. However, the relative handful of Confederates at the Ford occupied a formidable defensive position. Right, because over the winter, the rebels picketing the spot had constructed rifle pits along the riverbank and occupied two houses overlooking the ford. When the Yankee horsemen arrived, they also discovered that the Confederates had felled trees on the other side of the river, creating an abatis, so that an easy dash across the ford was out of the question. In short, the well-protected rebel rifle pits and the tangled, spiky abatis created substantial obstacles to any Federal crossing. And in fact, the Yankee horsemen had considerable difficulty forcing a crossing at Kelly's Ford on the morning of March 17th. 
100 troopers of the 4th New York and 5th U.S. formed the Federal Vanguard with the mission of quickly clearing the fort of the enemy so the rest of Averill's column could cross the river. But three attempts to force a crossing by the advance guard failed in the face of severe rebel musket fire. A frustrated Averill sent a small force a quarter of a mile downriver to try to flank the Confederates, but the deep water and steep riverbanks foiled the attempt. After half an hour, Averill was livid because a quick Federal crossing of Kelly's Ford had been thwarted by the rebel defenders, and so he sent his chief of staff, Major Samuel Chamberlain of the 1st Massachusetts, to force a crossing. Chamberlain ordered the 4th New York to form column of fours and to follow him across the ford. The New Yorkers followed Chamberlain across the river, but there ran afoul of the abatis and were exposed to the galling Confederate fire. Chamberlain's horse was shot and killed, and he was wounded, and the New Yorkers beat a hasty retreat. Even though he was badly injured, Chamberlain sent for 20 men of the 16th Pennsylvania armed with axes. While dismounted troopers covered them with carbine fire, the Pennsylvanians went to work chopping away at the tangled abatis. Chamberlain then ordered the 4th New York to try again. With the injured major leading them, the New Yorkers once more crossed the river, but not enough of the obstruction had been cleared, and fire from the rebel rifle pits had driven off the Pennsylvania axemen. The New Yorkers once again turned and fled. By this time, Chamberlain was beside himself with anger and frustration. He rode over to the first Rhode Island and chose Lieutenant Simeon Brown to lead the next assault. And ordered Brown to either successfully clear the far bank or not return. Brown, riding a conspicuous large white horse, would make the dash with eighteen troopers to be followed by the balance of the first Rhode Island and the sixth Ohio. Away the little assault column went, only to break and run at the river bank before crossing the ford, leaving Major Chamberlain alone and exposed at the water's edge. He again had a horse shot from under him, and he was wounded again. As he lay on the river bank, it was said he emptied his revolver, firing first at the fleeing Rhode Islanders and then at the rebels on the opposite shore. The Rhode Islanders rallied, though, and with a cheer rode into the frigid water with the axemen of the 16th Pennsylvania following them. The rest of the Rhode Islanders and the Ohioans came on close behind. The Confederate defenders later admitted to specially targeting Lieutenant Brown on his eye catching white horse, but somehow Brown made it across the river untouched. To reward his bravery, Hooker would see that Brown was promoted to captain for his distinguished service that morning. Even after Brown led the charge that finally broke the rebel defense at Kelly's Ford, it still took nearly two more hours for the abatis to be cleared completely away and for the rest of the Federal column to cross the river and form up. At last, about a quarter after ten, Averill moved his command out as soon as all was ready, leaving a squadron behind to guard the ford. 
The Federals moved forward slowly and cautiously, and when their skirmishers started to trade fire with some of Fitz Lee's troopers, the Yankees formed a line of battle facing north, with their left in a grove of trees, their right reaching into a field and farmyard, and ending behind a stone fence. Fitz Lee, hearing of the Federal attempt to force a crossing at Kelly's Ford, had ridden swiftly forward from his headquarters at Culpeper, deploying his 800 horsemen between Kelly's Ford and Brandy Station, a small depot on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad that Lee assumed was the Yankees' target. Toward noon, the two forces made contact. As his skirmishers advanced, though, Lee found to his surprise that the Federals were mostly in defensive positions a mere mile and a half from the ford. Averill, besides tangling with his old friend Fitz Lee, was also facing, though he didn't know it, Jeb Stuart himself and the star rebel artillerist John Pelham. You see, Stuart had gone to Culpeper for the court-martial of one of his officers and followed Fitz Lee's brigade toward Kelly's Ford that morning. Stuart's chief of artillery, the 24-year-old Pelham, was likewise in the area, ostensibly to inspect a horse artillery battery, but in reality, the young man, a notorious flirt, was also there to visit a lady friend. At any rate, Pelham borrowed a horse and hurried to join Stuart when he heard a fight was brewing. Stuart and Pelham arrived just as Fitz Lee ordered one squadron of the 3rd Virginia to dismount and fire at the Yankees behind the stone fence. The rest of the regiment, backed by the 5th Virginia, made a mounted charge. Pelham had just helped position some guns when he impulsively joined the charge. He drew his saber, spurred his borrowed horse into line with the charging Virginians, and dashed forward. When he reached the stone fence, where the Virginians were pouring through a gate, Pelham rose in his stirrups and urged the men onward. Just then, a Federal artillery shell burst nearby, and Pelham fell from his horse. He lay on the ground, apparently unhurt, but unmoving. His eyes were open, and his heart was beating, but a fragment from the enemy shell had penetrated his skull. He was taken to Culpeper, where he died that night after surgeons declared his case hopeless. After his brilliant performance at the Battle of Fredericksburg, Robert E. Lee had praised the bold artillerist, calling him the gallant Pelham, and the South would mourn the death of this young Confederate hero. His remains were taken to Richmond, where they lay in state in the Capitol building, before being returned to his native Alabama for burial. Moments after Pelham was wounded, the Federals countercharged and retook the stone fence. At the same time, over on the Union left, Colonel Alfred Duffy, Averill's boldest subordinate, made an attack of his own, without orders, and the hard-charging Federals, making liberal use of the saber, hurled back the Confederates here, killing or capturing a good number of Fitzley's troopers. However, these successes, retaking the stone fence and the advance on Duffy's front, didn't tempt Averill to pursue very far, despite the fact he greatly outnumbered the rebels. Instead, he pulled up and waited for Fitzlee to renew his attack. Lee soon obliged, sending his men forward once again, 
only to have them repulsed once again. Many of the federal officers and men wanted to aggressively counterattack, but Averill's cautious orders locked them in place, so the frustrated Union horsemen sat and watched as the reeling Confederates fell back and their officers tried to rally them. Averill had beaten Fitzlee's vaunted rebel horsemen on the field of battle, but a greater opportunity lay in front of him. He had only to press forward with his entire line of battle, and he would have swept the Confederates from the field. But Averill later claimed he could hear railroad cars at Brandy Station bringing up rebel reinforcements. He said there were reports that Confederate infantry had been spotted off to his right. And although all of this was nothing more than fantasy, Averill took counsel of his fears and broke off the fight. As Averill prepared to depart and recross the river at Kelly's Ford, He left two badly wounded officers at a farmhouse with a surgeon and some medical supplies. He also left a sack of coffee and a note with a doctor, who gave it to Fitz Lee when the rebel brigadier visited the two wounded officers. The note read, Dear Fitz, here's your coffee. Here's your visit. How do you like it? Admittedly, the battle at Kelly's Ford was no bloodbath. As tended to be the case in cavalry versus cavalry fights throughout the war, the casualties suffered by each side were relatively few in number. Averill's force of 2,100 men suffered six men killed, 50 wounded, and 22 men missing. By comparison, Fitz Lee had about 800 men engaged and reported 11 men killed, 88 wounded, and 34 missing. Averill's lack of aggressiveness cost him the opportunity to win a decisive victory over an enemy he outnumbered by nearly three to one. He advanced only about three miles from Kelly's Ford, if that, and failed to cause any significant damage to Fitz Lee's brigade. By most accepted measures of combat, the force left in possession of the battlefield at the end of the day was considered the victor and Fitz Lee and his battered brigade held the field after the Federals withdrew back across the river. However, such calculations don't always tell the whole story, and the Battle of Kelly's Ford was an important victory for the Federals, since it worked wonders for the morale of the blue-clad horse soldiers. He was wrong about the numbers involved, but Duffy nevertheless hit the nail on the head when he summed up the results of the fight when he wrote... Here was an opportunity, so long sought for, of meeting the rebel cavalry in an open field. This was a square, stand-up fight, away from either army, between nearly equal numbers, and we convinced our Confederate foes that henceforth they would no longer have a holiday when they met Federal cavalry. What occurred at Kelly's Ford was new to both sides. Union cavalry had taken the fight to the enemy, and stood toe-to-toe with the vaunted rebel horse soldiers. When all was said and done, the clash near Kelly's Ford on St. Patrick's Day, 1863, represented an important step in the development of the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry Corps. The fight, although inconclusive in the tactical sense, due to Averill's cautiousness, was nonetheless viewed as a turning of the page, as a new beginning, for the Yankee horsemen. 
No longer would the Union cavalry feel inferior, overmatched, and on the defensive when confronting their Confederate counterpart. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom by David W. Blight. This book obviously doesn't have anything to do with Kelly's Ford or Civil War cavalry, but this remarkable biography of a remarkable man just came out a few weeks ago, and we want to bring it to your attention. So, well, here you go. David Blight may be familiar to some of you as the author of the book Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory. But Frederick Douglass has been a special subject of study for him his entire scholarly career, and this outstanding biography is the worthy culmination of that lifetime of study. We really can't recommend it highly enough. That's Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, by David W. Blight. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations by heading over to the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to let you know that just yesterday we released members episode number 77, which was the second of two shows that we used to look at the battle between the Confederate Commerce Raider CSS Alabama and USS Hatteras in the Gulf of Mexico on January 11th, 1863. So we hope the members of the Strawfoot Brigade enjoy those episodes, including the newest members, Don, Kareen, and Vic. As we bring this show to a close, we want to remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and at the end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water. And we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865. to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.